God. Praise God. A thousand tongues. Think of that. Kind of a weird picture, and yet we think, God, there's not enough. You are so worthy. I don't have enough to sing your praises. You can actually go ahead and take a seat. This morning's going to be a little bit different. Uh, For some of you, maybe it would be a lot bit different in regards to the format of the service. And it's all around missions, summit missions. So as I'm looking out, I see people I know and people I don't know. Uh, I think Todd would remind me in about five seconds, if you're seated on the left side, you would want to grab the connection book, fill it out with any information you would want to provide, especially in regards to prayer requests, and then pass that down. A team looks at that every week, including the elders and pastors, and we pray over those things. We also praise God for those things. Back to missions. I see people I know, people I don't know. What do you think? Just, you could say it out loud if you want. What do you think of when you see missions on the screen? Missions. Maybe you've been in missions. Maybe you were a missionary in the past. Maybe you'd like to be a missionary. Uh, Maybe you just think of missions as the plural of mission. When we think about missions, we're really looking at it in our church as stemming out of Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. God tells us to go, to go. But there's these other components to missions as well. Mission, singular, the specific task that God gives to people or to a group of people. God charges people with that. Then there's the missio deo, right? You have to make it Latin to sound smart and important. That is that God is doing all these things to accomplish his overarching objective. The glory of his name, that is, things for his sake and his reputation. Missio Deo. And then there's also missional. Maybe past 15 years, missional has become like a super cool dude word, right? But the ministry of the church that happens beyond just caring for the people within the church and the body. People would say outreach maybe is a historical word for missional. What is missions? When, when Dennis later talks about missions, when we look at 1 Corinthians 9 this morning and think about missions, what are we meaning when we say that? And at Summit, we mean the work of the church in reaching across cultural, religious, ethnic, and geographic barriers to save people. Notice that in that color there? File that in your brain. To save people to save people and advance the work of making disciples of all nations. So when we talk about missions, when we think about going on missions trips, when we think about missionaries, this is what we mean. Reaching across cultural, religious, ethnic, and geographic barriers, borders, some people might say, to save people and advance the work of making disciples of all nations. And then a missionary is a person called by God and sent by the church to do missions. Maybe mark this in your Bible. Acts 13 and 14. Later on this week, read this. Because there's this idea of in missions, God calls men and women to do things. Then they're sent by the church. They're commissioned. Confirmed and commissioned by the church. Then they go, but as they go, they don't just take care of people. They proclaim or preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the first missionaries went, they appointed elders. They built up churches. The church matters very much to missions. So we all on the same page. I need some interaction here. Missions, when we say this, we know that this is what it means. And we're aligned as a church all together on this. So we're going to continue in our singing now. I'm going to pray to lead us into that. Father, thank you for the work that you've given us. And I pray that you would work by your spirit in our hearts now, according to the power of your word, that we would understand what you're calling us to do, both as individual believers and a group of believers together. Ultimately, we ask that you would work in our hearts, that we would submit our whole lives to you, that everything we think about and everything that we say and everything we do would be that others would be put before ourselves and saved according to the example that Jesus Christ set for us. And I pray that as we do this, we would not cling to our will and our own lives with a firm grip, but release that to you and see the great blessing of living according to your will. We always pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. There's a tradition we have in our church to kneel before we pray. We're going to do something a little different this morning. 1 Timothy 2, 
Paul is writing to Timothy about how things are to be done in the church. He talks about this aspect of prayer, supplications, and thanksgiving according to God's will that people would be saved. He says to pray for all people, kings and people in high places. And then Paul says this to Timothy coming out of that exhortation. I desire then that in every place or every church, every place people are worshiping, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So this morning, rather than kneeling, I'm going to ask you, though it might make you uncomfortable, men, to lift your hands, because in Christ Jesus, they are holy. We're going to pray together. Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you for this group of believers. Thank you for the work that you've done in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you've shown your love for us in this. That even though we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That though we wanted to be your enemies and were against you, you changed our hearts and brought us into your family. And we praise you for that. Pray that we would value and, and love and think about what you've done for us and value and think about the great things that you've done for us in saving us and that then we would think about others in that same regard for how you've saved us and that we would want to be part of your plan and your mission for saving them, that we would preach the gospel, that we would demonstrate a love to others and that we would speak the truth and love to others. Pray that our hearts, according uh, to what you've done to them, may be able to receive your word proclaimed this morning, and that we would be people excited by the truth of the gospel, and leaving this place buoyed by the power of the gospel, wanting to go forth. And as we go, therefore, we would make disciples of all nations, that we would desire to baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they w- we would always be devoted to teaching everyone to observe everything that, Lord Jesus, you have commanded Do this, God, for your glory, knowing that with that glory we are blessed. Amen. You can take your seat. Summit kids, you can go, unless you've already gone. Our passage this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on a really specific part of a bigger passage. So the part we're going to zero in on in regards to missions and a missions mindset is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. You can see those passages on the screen. Once we've zeroed in, there's a pattern we want to look for, but then we want to step back a little bit and look at chapters 8, 9, and 10 all together because there's some key principles that God has, us, has for us in that in regards to missions. Then we're going to go back to the passage that you see on the screen, the set of verses that you see on the screen in regards to missions. So fasten your seatbelts. If you get motion sickness, uh, we're going to be a little bit like this. But this is good that we would see both a very specific thing that God wants us to think about and a place that he wants our hearts to be. The big picture and principles that we can use from God's word to apply to any situation in our lives and then go back to some application. That makes sense? Someone give me a nod. Oh, cool, thanks. This is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. We're gonna actually look at 8, 9, and 10, big picture. But for this passage, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So as we read through these, and as you see them on the screen, or even better, as you look in your Bible as you have it open, you will notice a pattern that shows up. I want you to find that pattern. If we were in Sam's ministry or what Vicky does, we would have people shout it out, but we're grown-ups, so we don't do that. But find the pattern. There is a pattern there. Look for the pattern in the Word of God. God wants you to understand this. And Paul writing to that church in Corinth. Again, verse 19, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant tall that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, That I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. 
that I may share with them in its blessings. As we read that, did you see the pattern that's applied in the word of God? What does this date mean to us? June 6, 1944, anyone recognize it? D-Day, that's right. Uh, Coming up this June, it'll be 80 years since that happened. D-Day, coordinated efforts of 12 nations with over 2 million personnel, probably even more than that. Can you believe that? Two million people able to accomplish something together. Like, my family can't even decide where we want to go to eat. 7,000 ships and landing craft. 195,000 naval personnel. 11,590 aircraft. 150,000 assault troops. 5,000 allied troops killed. Probably more than that. When historians have looked at how many were actually killed, they said the troops were more focused on accomplishing the mission than keeping records that historians could look at. Two years started in 1942, essentially. Actually, 1941. Planning this out. Two years of planning. Can you imagine that? Think of what those men as they went on D-Day, what was going through their minds, and then what happened when the mission was executed. This is from the Army website and their history of D-Day. Disorganization, confusion, incomplete or faulty implementation of plans characterized the initial phases of the landing. Right? Have you, have you heard these stories about D-Day? This was especially true of the airborne landings, which were badly scattered, as well as the first wave units landing on the assault beaches. Notice on the screen, to their great credit, most of the troops were able to, what does that word say there? Just say it out loud. Adapt to the disorganization. So when you go into something and the bullets are flying, it's never going to go the way that you think it's going to go. You can plan all you want. You can build two years of plans for a great mission. But when you step into that mission, it's never going to go how you planned it to go. And you know what? God is provident. He's sovereign over all those things. So you must plan, but you must be willing to adapt to the disorganization as well. And we know from history that in the end, the allies achieved their objective because they were able to adapt. They planned and knew the plan, each one of them, but then they could adapt in the midst of the situation. Get your minds working now about missions. Could you see how this Example might apply to how we would think about missions. So we're going to look at these three chapters very quickly. If you want to get into the nitty-gritty of what eight means specifically in all its verses or nine or ten, you're not going to get that satisfaction this morning, but you will get a set of overarching principles that are very useful for missions and ministry in your whole life. I try to sound very military in writing this. God's strategic decision-making framework to drive mission success. Does that sound good? It's not about rules, regulations, and processes. Those, those things are important. This is about principles, people, and mission. Are we good? Still tracking? Good. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. If you flip back, actually don't flip back, but 1 Corinthians 7. The church at Corinth wrote the Apostle Paul because they had questions They knew that things were different in Christ Jesus because of the work that he had done. But they had all these questions. In 1 Corinthians 7, it's really about, you might say, sexuality and within human relationships and marriage. But then they asked this in 1 Corinthians 8.1, now concerning food offered to idols. Now this is interesting because we have literally no context for this other than if we've studied a passage like this before. Now, concerning food offered to idols, what happened in Corinth is idolatry to pagan or false so-called gods was so prevalent that the sacrifices that were part of that were basically pervasive throughout all of their kind of food economy. So if you were eating food, you always had to wonder, I wonder if this was sacrificed to idols. You could take it yourself. A priest got a portion of that, a pagan priest, that they could then use and eat themselves or keep or sell to other people. So when there was food about, there was always a chance that that food had been pa- like offered to pagan idols. How do we think about that in our context? When we think about going cross-culturally to other places, Here's some questions that that might help us. Really what I think the Corinthians were getting after. Does buying, using, or eating something produced from a sinful system make me complicit in sin? 
little more specific now. How much should other people's convictions and conscience impact how I live my life? And then who gets to decide what is right or wrong, good or bad? Now, in our church, we've been trained well enough, and I love this about our church, to say, well, the Bible says what's right. What do you do when the Bible is not as clear about something um, as you might like? How do you handle that situation? So when we think about concerning food offered to idols at the start of chapter 8, these are the questions that were in the Corinthians' mind. We don't know what to do with these situations. Tell us what to do with them. Paul, we want to know. So here's some examples. Now, concerning worship music written by people with questionable doctrine, what do we do with that, right? There's worship songs that are actually really good. And then when you look at the ministries of the people that write them, you're like, ooh. What do we do with those things? What about hanging out with gay people? What about medicine and healthcare, movies and media, alcohol, yoga? What about campaigning for ungodly leaders because they vote for the things we approve? The size, type, or cost of the places that we live or the vehicles that we drive. I don't know that there's passages in Scripture that tell me which type of truck to get. What someone can and cannot do on Sundays. Acquiring debt. Some would say that is the worst thing that you can do. Now concerning uh, other things that maybe aren't about right or wrong, but more like good or bad. House church, mini church, country church, city church, mega church, multi-campus church. I'm going to run out of breath. Multi-ethnic church. Multiple services with different worship style at each one church. Kids ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, singles ministry, divorce ministry, Sunday school, small groups, men or women's ministry, older adults ministry, food ministry, counseling ministry, different life situations ministry. How do we know what's best in these situations? Missions. What's the proper training for missions, right? Do you have faith and just go and then realize, oh, I probably should have gotten ready for this. Parachurch, right? Ministries that come alongside the church but aren't part of the church or the structure of a church. Agencies or boards of missions. Philosophies for missions. Missionaries. Individuals or teams. Church planting. The right type of planning, the right size of budget. How do we make decisions about these types of things in regards to missions? It's overwhelming. Whether you're kind of overwhelmed or your brain is exploding, there are so many decisions to make. How do we make those decisions? So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Love is greater than individual liberty. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, right? You're reading it? This knowledge, air quotes added, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. What happened is the Corinthians wanted to know these things, and they knew that in Christ Jesus things were different than they had been in the past. So then they were thinking about these types of food. And Paul told them, hey, idols are really nothing. If you're curious about this topic, read Psalm 15 or the prophet Isaiah chapter 44. And think about idols. A guy takes a tree and cuts it down and makes it into a statue that he worships. It's stupid. It's nothing. This is a piece of wood that he worships. Psalm 15 says those who worship idols become like them. Idols are nothing. They have no power. But I think it's going to be in verse 7 of chapter 8. However, not all possess this knowledge. There's this group of people that are described as having a weak conscience. What, is, what does that mean? They don't have this knowledge. They don't possess this knowledge of what Christ has done. It doesn't mean they don't have faith. It means their inner ability to make moral judgments is not strong enough to deal with context, nuance, and the inherent tension of faith. They need things to be perfectly black and white to be at peace and in their Christian life to be productive. So there's this group of people that doesn't understand that. And Paul is basically telling the people, and this is an overview, head knowledge without heart transformation fattens your head and hurts your brother, right? So if it's all about what's up here and the knowledge that you've acquired, but you haven't been changed in your heart to love people, all that does is make your head like a big balloon, 
And it ends up hurting your brother. Look at verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Paul is teaching here that you can choose in your Christian walk to humbly constrain your freedom so that others are built up. The freedom is real. The freedom is not wrong. You have liberty in Christ Jesus. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And yet, you should use the freedom that you have in Christ to serve one another in love. That's the whole synopsis of chapter 8. Chapter 9, souls are greater than individual rights. We should put God's plan of salvation ahead of our individual rights. I think in our culture, we're obsessed with rights. Even thinking about D-Day, why did we go? People went and died so that I might have freedom that I might have rights. We say there's inalienable rights that God gives us. And there's a reality, and it's in Scripture, that we have rights. But you can choose to give up things that are lawfully and rightfully yours so that there are no obstacles in the way of the gospel. The example Paul used was payment for things. Preachers can get money for their work. Those who preach the gospel can get paid. And actually, it says, if you read in verse 9 later today, they should get paid. God wants preachers to get paid. God wants people in ministry to get paid. And Paul was saying, but there is something more important than my right to get paid, or my right to eat, or my right to take a wife. And that's that I would preach the gospel without putting any obstacles in the way of that. So Paul never took money from the people he was preaching to. If he took money, it was always that he might take that and and go somewhere else and preach a gospel to someone because he didn't want anything to be in the way of that. So souls, the saving of people's souls is more important than our individual rights. So love is greater than or more important than liberty. Souls are greater than individual rights. Also, I feel compelled at this moment to say I was the one who stomped on the mouse. He's no longer with us. 1 Corinthians 10. Whole and consistent devotion to God is greater than observing ordinances. An interesting thing seemed to be happening in Corinth. They recognized that they'd been baptized, right, into Christ Jesus. And they recognized that they were always taking communion. And in chapter 11, there's even prescriptions for how to do that. They were messed up with it. But they had this idea like, hey, I've been baptized. and I'm always taking communion. But then they would go and live their lives in a way that didn't demonstrate devotion to God. So they were observing the ordinances. They'd been baptized. And they were constantly taking communion, though they were kind of raucous and undisciplined in how they did it. And they thought that somehow that gave them a right or permission to live a divided life. Paul wants them to understand that you must. This is not a can choose. This is a must do. You must use everything you do to glorify God. You should be deliberate about finding ways to make every part of your life support the mission He's given you. Now, this is interesting because we often think of not doing things, right? A very Christianese phrase like, thou shalt not. And we know the things that we shouldn't do. But this is a different mindset to say, uh, you can actually see it in chapter 10. It's a very famous verse. Verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you think about making everything that you do being to the glory of God? When you have to wake up moms and dads in the middle of the night because the kid threw up like five feet. It's amazing how kids can do that. Just a trail of that. Do you serve that child to the glory of God? When the guy wants to get in ahead of you in traffic and you're like, that's not right. You should use the zipper method or you should do this. Or when the thing comes up, you should five miles back merge together. When there's an open lane there for five miles. Do you use that situation to glorify God? Are you finding ways to make everything in your life about glorifying God? The ways that you work, the ways that you interact together if you're in marriage, marital intimacy, how you raise your children, how you make money, how you interact with people at the store, everything that you do, are you using that to glorify God? Are you being deliberate about finding ways to make those things glorify God? It's about whole and consistent devotion to God. It's not about being part of a church family and then living your life like you didn't do that. 
So some application, right? Remember, this is about missions. Three questions that drive a missions mindset. How can I leverage, when you face a situation or a circumstance, how can I leverage this situation to meet the mission objectives that God has given me? Think about the D-Day troops. The paratroopers were dropped nowhere near they were supposed to be dropped, right? That happened. Some of them miles and miles away. And yet they still knew what to do because they knew the mission objectives, interesting uh, account of God's providence in that many of them, especially in the 101st Airborne, if they had landed in the places that they were supposed to land, would have landed right on machine gun setups of the enemy. So by God's providence, they were put somewhere else. They had to do things to work around that, but God protected them. How can I leverage this situation to meet the mission objectives that God has given me? If you build a plan for your life on how you want to use the money that God has given you for missions, and then something happens, are you able to adapt to still meet the mission objective, even if you can't give in the way that you thought you'd be able to? How can I leverage this situation to meet the mission objectives? Do you know the mission objectives? At Summit, we say it's to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. And every action that we take, strategic, tactical, if we go a higher level to philosophy, it's all about those things, that God would be glorified, people would be disciples, taught according to the word of God, and in their lives they would exalt Jesus Christ. This one's easy, so we can go over it fast. Am I operating selflessly? Love, humility, and sacrifice. I'd encourage you to read chapters 8, 9, and 10 and see that pattern that shows up. That it's all for the sake of someone else and not for my own sake. Am I operating selflessly in love? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love is real and strong and powerful. We need knowledge, but apart from love, knowledge isn't very useful. Humility the ability to put others before ourselves, the ability to be fully and entirely dependent on God, and then sacrifice. So when you face a decision in regards to your life or ministry or missions, you have to ask yourself, am I operating selflessly in that? Is this about sacrifice and me being humble before God and me being driven by love? And then a third one, how can I change, adapt, and flex my approach so that others can experience God's blessings. End of chapter 10. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. There's something that happens as we get older. I'm noticing this in my own life. Some people would use the, a term, and some of you won't like it if you're older, um, curmudgeon. There's something that happens as we age, and I'm noticing this in my own life. You become more focused on your own pattern. It's very hard to break out of ways of doing. Interestingly enough, when you're younger, kind of, you don't know enough things, so you always just follow a pattern because that's kind of teaching you. But we need to be willing to change, adapt, and flex approaches so that others can experience God's blessings. Think that, about that in the context of missions. If you go somewhere, can you change to adapt to a situation so that others can experience God's blessings? What do you need to change in your life? I'm not talking about sin here. I'm talking about approach to ministry. So when you talk to some people, you talk in a certain way. When you talk to other people, you talk in a certain way. This does not mean abandoning the truth of Scripture. It means taking advantage of the freedom that we have in Christ that other people can receive God's blessings. And here's the reality of the situation. These three questions are basically just asking yourself more specifically, how can I think like and be like Jesus Christ, the Word of God? This is what Jesus did in missions. He interacted differently with the Pharisees than he did with the woman at the well. But he was focused on the mission that God gave him. His heart was filled with love and humility and he was willing to give up even his own life for those he loved. And then he would flex in situations. We're back to our focal point now. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now, now here we're going to talk about that pattern that we identified. I am free from all. 
This is a declarative true statement. But in that freedom, I made myself, I made the choice to be a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. If you know scripture, this is the same word, win there. That's from Matthew chapter 18 when it's talking about, hey, if your brother sins against you, if your brother offends you, go to him. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You've won your brother. This is the type of winning that we think about. It's not a winning for ourselves. It's a winning for the sake of Christ. To the Jews, I became, there's the word again, became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That is, I I act like a Jew. I know about the Jews. I know their culture and how they operate. Why? Because I want to win Jews. To those under the law, this is just kind of getting more specific about this. I became as one under the law, though not being under myself under the law. He's not putting himself under the law that I might win those under the law. Are Are we understanding this? This is adaptation and flexibility, understanding the immense power of the gospel that gives us the freedom to do these things. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. This is the one that freaks us out generally. Because someone invariably will say, oh, so you should just go hang out with messed up people and they're going to make you messed up too. And you know the trump card is always, well, what did Jesus do? He was accused wrongly for the way that he lived his life. He's a drunk. He hangs out with sinners and prostitutes. So I know what he's like. We have this weird fear within the church, especially if we've been in the church our whole lives, that somehow if we try to interact with people in a context where they're kind of at in their relationship with God, that somehow we're just going to be pulled away and instantly go nuts. This is not saying that we should be stupid. It's saying that we should be motivated by the desire that people would be saved. Because Paul explains that. Look at it in the middle of verse 21. He recognizes, I'm not outside the law of God. But I'm under the law of Christ. So become as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. There it is again. I became something. I adapted to something. Why? Because I want those people to be saved. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And here we know that Paul is not the one doing the saving. He's participating in God's work, sovereign work, that people would be saved. I don't know how many weeks away it is. We'll, we'll be in Revelation It feels like a hundred years away from me uh, at this point, but like Revelation 19, great battle close to the very end. I have trouble reading this without uh, crying like a baby. So give me some grace, right? Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. Do we have this picture in our, in our mind that John was blessed to be able to see of Jesus leading a heavenly army and an army of all his people. This is about salvation because look, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, a name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When we think about salvation, we think about people being saved from the devil and eternal separation from God. But there's this aspect of we are partaking in a work of saving people from God's wrath, his white-hot anger at sin. That's saving people. And when we talk about God's wrath, people often tend to freak out. Well, that's awful of God to be like that. But then you look at this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's hatred of sin, his white-hot furious anger at sin. He put on Jesus on the cross and Jesus took that so we didn't have to. 
And that should inspire us and motivate us to go therefore and make disciples. Why? So that those people can be saved. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn people. He came to save people. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And how can people believe if they've never heard of Jesus? He's called us to go. He's called us to send. He's called us to fund. He's called us to participate and to support. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do we want other people to be fellow partakers in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Join me as I pray. Father, thank you for your goodness that you've shown the truth to us in your word. I pray by your spirit we would get the principles in this passage, that we would not be afraid to think of ourselves as on a great mission from you and apply these things every day, everyone we interact with, neighbors, people we don't know, acquaintances, co-workers, family members, that we would be very much a part of the mission that you've called us to do. Pray that as we do that, you would bless us, give us confidence, and all the things that you promised by your spirit that we may endure and then see that moment in the end when you conquer sin and destroy your enemies. I so appreciate what Bjorn was saying. What are we willing to give up in order to win some? I know for myself, that's a difficult challenge uh, that he was giving to us. So today I've been tasked with the, the task of communicating to you guys kind of what the elders have been thinking about missions and uh, kind of and what we're planning to do at least for the next year or two. I have this slide, one mission many missions to remind me to tell you that the one mission is what Bjorn was talking about. It's the missio deo. That's that Latin word that helps us to sound smart. It's God's mission to save the world. It's God's mission to save the world because in doing so, he glorifies himself. He demonstrates to us who he is by saving us and by redeeming the world. And and one day there will be a, a new heaven and a new earth because of what he accomplished. But it's also many missions because each of us, if we're on the mission that he's on to save the lost, we each have our own mission that's, that we have to be given, be directed to by God. So what I'm going to do is I want to give you a little story about kind of where we've been as a church when talking about missions and then talk about where we're going. So where have we been? In 1993... That's when this church came into existence. There aren't a lot of people left from 1993. Um, but it was Grace Church of West Ottawa at that time. And at that time we had a, what I, for lack of a better phrase, call a traditional mission support model. In other words, we had particular missionaries that we supported, gave, had funds going to every month or every quarter or whatever, and then it was in the old building, which is now the ch- where all the kids are. But we had pictures of them, and we had, I remember some flags. Um, and some of you may, may remember we had like the Kashtans and the Kumars that we supported. That's going, it's going back a ways. But that was, that was the model of missions that we did then. And the, sometimes the missionaries would come in and, and they would speak or, or whatever. In 2006, we affiliated with Harvest Bible Fellowship, and this changed the way that we did missions, the way that we changed how we looked at cross-cultural missions. And what happened now, or then, is that we 
we took the funds that we would be giving for cross-cultural missions and we sent it to the fellowship, Harvest Bible Fellowship, and then they used those funds toward global church planting efforts. And in this time, we sent teams to, to some of the churches that were part of that fellowship. We sent teams to Liberia, we sent pe- teams to the Caribbean, to St. Vincent, to Grenada, Turks, Caicos, Jamaica. Can I get a, raise your hands if you ever went on one of those missions. If you look around you, you can see how many people were affected by going on those short-term missions trips. So that was very, I, I believe that was very beneficial to our body. And one of the things that happened when I would talk to people that came back from those kind of mission trips was they were so excited about what, what happened on that trip. And one of the reasons they were excited was because it was, a, it was a group of people and they were all dedicated to one task, one mission. And everything that they did focused on that. It focused on saving the lost. What I'm saying today is that should be characteristic of us as the church. We're a group of people. We should all be focused on one mission, saving the lost. In 2017, Harvest Bible Fellowship dissolved due to leadership challenges. And kind of flowing out of that fellowship came the Great Commission Collective, or the GCC, which we were part of in 2017 until last year. It was basically the same model, still focused on equipping and church planting. In 2019, going into 2020, we, the elders, spent a considerable amount of time kind of rethinking our, our mission. We made a, the new mission statement that, that Bjorn just shared with us, to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. We made the pillars that are out there in the foyer and we took one of the pillars that we had before what was preaching the word of God without apology. And we took that away from being a pillar and we made it the foundation. The foundation of everything that we do needs to be Jesus Christ, the word of God. And we renamed ourselves for the third time Summit Church. The reason we named ourselves Summit Church is to remind us and to remind all of us to keep our eyes focused on Christ, on the things that are above, not on the things that are around us, not on the, the trials and tribulations that we may go through, but always be focusing on Christ. So that's why we, we renamed ourselves Summit Church. In 2023, we departed the GCC on good terms, nothing wrong with the GCC, um, but we really felt the call to bring missions back in-house. And one of the things, during that 2019, 2020, and, and last year as we considered missions, one of the passages in Scripture that was important to us as an elder board was the prayer of Jehoshaphat, written in Second Chronicles, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And really, we never want to depart from this prayer. We may have plans. We may make plans for missions. We may make plans for what we want to do as a church. But we never want to, we never want to lose focus on keeping our eyes on the summit, keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. So you may remember last February, we had an, a time of fasting and praying for missions. And we asked you, you all to pray with us for God's guidance in what we were going to do for missions. We, had, we kind of felt like missions is important, cross-cultural missions, but we, weren't, we didn't know what to do. But our eyes were fixed on Christ, and we were seeking his guidance. Here's the beautiful thing. God answers prayers. One of the things, some of the things that we had you pray about, there was an opportunity in Ireland, there was an opportunity in the Bahamas. Those were things that we talked about and, and just other 
possible opportunities that might come into, that God might bring to us. Well, last December, a group of us went to Ireland. We met the, the people in Ireland. And if you go to Ireland, and I strongly recommend it, we, we hope to send a, uh, a group in end of summer, probably end of July, August, sometime in that, that area, to partner with them and do a, like a VBS or children's camp type of uh, ministry so that to help them with their outreach to the Irish people. So I strongly recommend considering that uh, to any of you. Sometimes opportunities fall through. Um, there was also the opportunity to, to work uh, with a ministry in the Bahamas. We really felt that God wasn't leading us there. An interesting thing, when we were in this whole process, we had two young people from within our congregation that had gone on those mission trips to Liberia, and in the case of my daughter, Jamaica. Um, And they were seeking support in order to go overseas to make disciples. And so when we're considering all these things, there's a, a way in which we try to think, um, a grid through which we kind of put things. It's not a hard and fast grid, but it's, they're all based on biblical principles, and I think they're applicable to all of us. One, it has to connect with our mission to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. Two flows directly out of that. Whatever we're supporting needs to be about making disciples, So wherever it's located, whether it's in Ireland or Austria or Jamaica, it needs to be about making disciples. Whatever we're supporting needs to have a similar doctrine. We don't want to support heterodoxy. We want something that's orthodox. Um, But really what we are really looking, looking for is a ministry that loves Jesus Christ and the word of God those being the same. Number four might seem a little surprising sometimes, but it must glorify God and not Summit Church. I know sometimes in the past there have been uh, there have been things where it's like we're gonna we're gonna plant fifty-five thousand churches in ten years. Okay. Is that what God wants us to do? That's that's the question that we're asking. We want, whatever we do, we want it to glorify God, not us. And therefore, we must be clearly led by the Spirit to participate in the work. So, that brings us to what we're going to do in 2024, going into 2025. In 2024, the mission's budget it's $38,700. That's what we've got. Um, 8700 of it are, is kind of dedicated to in, an, in, around, and beyond. Or in, an, in and around. And then beyond is about 30000 So that's the cross-cultural missions that we're kind of focusing on to, today. What we're going to use it for is the missions that we intend to support. Hope Church which is in Nace, Ireland. Nace is a, it's a little town just southwest of Dublin. Um, maybe, well, it depends on traffic, but 30, 30 to 45 minutes away from uh, Dublin. And after going there in December, it's, they have, they've had a lot of struggles. They lost their, their, their senior pastor um, we can relate to that, right? Um, but they, and they have no real leadership. And so uh, Doug from Harvest Traverse City has been working with them for a while. That's how the kind of the opportunity came to us, um, was through the GCC. And when we went over there and met with them and we see the, the caliber of the, of the leadership potential that they have, we feel compelled to go and help 
You may remember, I think it was in November, we prayed over and commissioned and sent Ika and Amanda Modukaneli. I knew I was going to say that wrong. Um, they are missionaries in Central Asia. We're not going to talk about exactly where they are because they, they've asked us not to because um, it can be dangerous for them where they're at. And then Paul and Mackenzie Tepper, you may have met, met them. They've been going to seeing a lot of you uh, over this last few months. Mackenzie is my daughter. She, uh, the seeds of kind of missionary service were planted to, in her when she went to Jamaica and, and served there and saw God working in the way that God works in that cross-cultural uh, ministry setting. And we're still going to continue to support Harvest Bible Church in Spanish Town, Jamaica. Now you see up there, incrementally phasing out our financial commitment by the middle of 2025. So we are beginning to phase down our financial commitment, so the money that, that's part of that, $30,000. Originally, we were going to be phasing out in 2020, but then, well, you know, 2020 happened. Um, I still have PTSD from that. All right. So you may be asking, what does this mean? What does this mean to me? God has given us, corporately, a mission to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. We're pretty confident of this mission, even though it's kind of a small, it's a kind of a pithy way to say it. It's basically, it comes from the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So disciples who exalt Jesus Christ are disciples who observe all that he has commanded them. So back to one mission, many missions. We talked about the Missio Dei, that's the mission of God. And really the term mission basically comes from the word sending. God is the one who sends. But the mission is God's, the, the purpose and reason for missions comes from God. He's, he's the one who's saving the world. And because of that, he's the one who sends us. John 17, 18 is Jesus' high priestly prayer where he's praying to the Father and he says to the Father, as you sent me, so as Jesus was sent into the world, now I am sending them. And when he said saying them, he's talking about his disciples or us, those who follow him. So because the mission is God's, it means that we need to be in constant prayer and communication with God. This is not optional for us. It's not optional for us as a body, corporately, and it's not optional for you individually. An interesting biological fact if a baby is born and the baby can't hear, so he's deaf, at the same time that babies coo and babble, deaf babies coo and babble, they do the exact same thing that, that hearing babies do. But they stop after a while. They just stop because they're not getting any feedback. They're not hearing anything coming back at them. And I think that's a... That's a kind of a scary picture of prayer to me because when we pray if we're not if we don't sense that God is speaking back to us through his word and his spirit speaking to our spirit we're going we're just going to stop praying or we're not going to pray very often or we'll just go through the motions of prayer but prayer and listening what God has for us is not optional. If you're able to do that, if you pray and listen to what God has for you, then you will know the part that you need to contribute to the overall mission of God and therefore the mission of our church. 
So for us, mission begins in West Michigan. That's where we live. And in, in the Great Commission, the go isn't necessarily go overseas. It's the way that it's written in the original Greek, it's really in your going. So as you go, make disciples. And Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So for us, West Michigan is kind of Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria would be maybe all of Michigan or the Midwest. And to the end of the earth still means to the end of the earth. Um, So what does this mean to you? I would say pray. Consider how you can serve locally. Pray, is there a way that you can get involved in the disc golf outreach or gateway mission or second chance farm or any of the other opportunities for outreach that we have? I think we're starting a pickleball court pretty soon. So that's another potential uh, outreach. And finally, whenever people talk about missions, it's usually, they usually will talk about pray, give, and go. There's this idea that you should, be pray, you should be praying for missionaries. If you're not going, then you should be giving. Um and then maybe going. But like I was just saying, we're all called to go. So we, when, I, when we were talking about this, we really kind of wanted to make it in the present tense. And so therefore, we have praying, giving, and going. And it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. The praying always feeds into the giving. Praying always feeds into the going. So consider this. Where is it that you've been sent? Where do you work? Who do you encounter? Maybe you're a mom, stays home with her kids most of the day. You've been sent to those kids then. If you you work in a place like I do where a lot of times I'm by myself, it's the people that that I encounter. I talk with my coworkers, um, try to try to find opportunities to witness to them. And by witnessing, what I mean is displaying God's love for them and, when possible, declaring that to them. So what is your mission? This is where it's important for you to be praying. What is God calling you to do? So praying... For cross-cultural missions. I hope each of you will be praying for Hope Church in Nace, for Harvest Spanish Town, for the Maducan Alleys, and for the Teppers. Those are the, the missions that we're planning to support this year. But you should also be considering how to use the funds that God gives you to support his mission. So you should be praying. Should you give to the Teppers or the Medicinales or should you just give to Summit? Those, we're not telling you what to do, but I also think as we see our budget go up in, at Summit, we hope to increase the budget for missions um, and, and other things. But Hopefully, we as a, as a group will be able to do more outreach. So praying and giving, and then praying and going. This is the idea of going to those who are around you, but also considering, like I was talking about earlier with Ireland, consider going on the trip to Ireland to help with the, with the kids' club. Or, back to giving, maybe you can't go, but you could help send somebody else to go. So those are the, that's kind of how we've been thinking about missions. If you struggle with hearing from God, if you struggle with knowing what what God's will is for you, talk to us. That's 
That's why we're here. We want to equip you to, to walk with Christ, to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So I hope that's helpful. If you have more questions, also again, talk to us. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to live our lives fully engaged in your mission. You have told us that you have come to give us life and to give, it, to give us life to the full. And Lord, we recognize that the full life comes from being on mission with you, trying to accomplish the same things that you're trying to accomplish. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a willingness to sacrifice for others like Jesus had for us. And Holy Spirit, give us a a heart for the lost. Help us to, to speak well and to speak clearly and to declare the mystery of Christ to those around us. Thank you, Father, for always being with us even to the end of the age, for being our Emmanuel. We pray this in your good and gracious and glorious name. Amen.